Well, if you're a guest this morning, we're delighted that you're here. And we're, we're embarking on a brand new series on the life of the prophet Elijah. Today we're going to talk about just ordinary people and extraordinary moments. Uh, I really am, I, I will tell you, inspired by ordinary people who accomplish the extraordinary. Zig Ziglar said, I believe success is achieved by ordinary people with extraordinary determination. Sometimes it's not the talent, it's the determination that makes the difference. But it, it begins with the ordinary person. CBS airs an interesting show called Scorpion. I don't know if you've watched it or not, but it's about a team of geniuses who help the government solve problems around the world. Now, whenever I watch that show or I read about the accomplishments of an Albert Einstein, I'm inspired, but I can't relate because I'm ordinary. I'm, I'm not a genius. Most of you here probably like that, but, but we're not geniuses. When I read about the historic impact of blind, deaf, and mute Helen Keller, or when I listen to the music of Stevie Wonder, blind from birth, I am truly captivated. But I can't relate because I've never had to overcome such overwhelming odds to accomplish something. However, when an ordinary person does something extraordinary, it captures my attention. Does the name Jack Andraka mean anything to you? You recognize that name? Jack lost a family member to pancreatic cancer and uh, was determined that he would do something about it. Pancreatic cancer is one of those that is never caught very often. It's usually too far advanced for the success uh, and survival rate to be high. And so because of this loved one of his, uh, he decided to try and figure out a way. Is there something he can do to help find it sooner. And so Jack has developed a promising, not done with it yet, but it's a very promising early detection test for pancreatic cancer that's cheap, effective, and non-evasive. An ordinary guy. Did I mention that he did this before he was 16? I'm inspired by ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And how about New York resident Pam Koner? Pam read in a newspaper article about people in Pembroke, Illinois, who by the time they got to the last week of their month, they were without food. She studied the needs of the community. She talked to a minister who worked with these people in that part of Pembroke. And then through her child care business, she asked and recruited 17 people, 17 families, who would sort of adopt a family in Pembroke, Illinois, and on the last week of the month would send them food. That led, in just seven years, from an original group of 17 families to 16 chapters throughout the United States serving 17 communities, meeting the needs of 400 families. That's just incredible. Just an ordinary person reading a newspaper article and said, I can do something about that. When I read about folks like Jack and Pam, I'm inspired by their ordinariness. That encourages me because as an ordinary person among ordinary people, maybe, maybe God can use us to, to accomplish his will in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Now, it's one of the reasons why I really love studying the life of Elijah. It would appear from scripture that he was just a regular guy, but what he accomplished in God's plan and by God's power was absolutely awesome. And if God could use him in such a profound, powerful way, and since the Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then I think we can conclude that God is still working through people, ordinary people. And what fascinates me most is that when God had an extraordinary moment to accomplish, 
He most often accomplished it through an ordinary person. So I think there's hope. God can, and I believe will, use us. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. You know enough about the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, and you're thinking, I've read about this guy. He was involved in some miraculous moments. I mean, how is that ordinary? Well, it's not. But the, but the miraculous power wasn't from Elijah. It was from God working through him. God uses thousands of people throughout the Bible, but he rarely used miracles. They are few and far between. What I'm trying to tell you is that God does not need to do miraculous things in order to accomplish his will through us. God does not need to suspend, to suspend the laws of nature in order for something extraordinary to happen. I believe that God works through, providentially, the everyday flow of life to get his job done. And when I suggest to you this morning that Elijah was an ordinary guy, I'm only, I'm only suggesting what the Bible already tells us. James chapter 5, verse 17 reads like this. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. A man just like us. Ordinary. That's why I'm so thrilled about this story. And, and, and look how his story begins. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That's it. That's our introduction to Elijah, Mr. Ordinary. Moses, when he was born, was placed in a basket and floated down the Nile, which was overflowing at that particular time, which was filled with crocodiles at, at that time. It is nothing short of miraculous that the, this little basket made it all the way down the Nile River to where the princess of Egypt was bathing. She adopted the boy, raised Moses in the palace of, of, of Pharaoh. That's pretty extraordinary. Uh, when you look at the life of Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist, all were born to women who had been barren, who prayed that God would give them a child. And in answer to their prayers, God gave them a child that he later used in powerful ways. But Elijah, he shows up on the scene with no fanfare, with no pedigree. All we know is that he was from Tishbe, a, a community that has yet to be discovered by archaeologists, which might indicate that it was a place of little significance, just an ordinary country Jewish community. Knowing that, and knowing what James tells us, inspires me to study this great man of God. Because in his ordinariness, he became this extraordinary person. He was the epitome of all the Old Testament prophets. He was the greatest among those Old Testament proclaimers. His name was synonymous with spiritual success for 900 years after his death. When Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, was prophesying about the coming of John the Baptist 400 years later. He, he couldn't think of anybody better to compare him to. And he said, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. 
400 years later, Zacharias is in the temple. The angel Gabriel comes to him to tell him he's going to have a son, and that son is going to be John the Baptist. Uh, and, and, and so he says this, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. When John the Baptist was preaching and stirring the land of Judea with his message, the people asked, are you Elijah? When Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop in preparation for his cross experience, it was Moses and Elijah that came back to encourage him. And when Jesus cried out to the Father on the cross, those who were at the cross and heard what he said, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. No prophet in the Old Testament held a greater respect or promise of hope in the minds of the Jewish people than Elijah. And what he accomplished was, was nothing less than heroic. But he didn't start that way. In the weeks ahead, I want us to keep one thing in mind. God can and will use anyone in his kingdom to carry out his purpose and plan. Never conclude, folks, that God couldn't use you or that you have nothing to offer. No matter how insignificant you view yourself, no matter how small you see your talents or abilities, in the hands of God, your talents become tools. And in the hands of God, your life becomes an instrument of his will. You see, when God has an extraordinary job to be done, he almost always calls on an ordinary person who has extraordinary willingness and extraordinary faith. A person just like Elijah, a person just like you, a person just like me. Now, in order to understand Elijah's ministry, we have to set the stage for what was going on in the land of Israel at that time. So let me read to you from 1 Kings chapter 16. This is 16 leading into 17 where we saw Elijah burst on the scene. Verse 29 reads like this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now, things are not always what they appear to be. At a glance, times in Israel could not have been better. The economy was good, and Israel was not at war. Peace was pervasive throughout the land at this time. Uh, and, and for the time period, life in Israel was really pretty comfortable. It was a good place to be living. King Omri was responsible as a great builder. And he had built up physically the, the land and, and, and the people. He built the capital city of Samaria. At least he started it. His son Ahab would later finish it. And he was building up the wealth of Israel through all of this time. Ahab, his son, when he came to the throne, was brilliant, daring, charming, and rich. Everything you would want in a king or a leader of the nation. Everything except for the fact 
that he was terribly dishonest and frightfully ungodly, which was his downfall. You see, you, you can have all of those other good things, but if you don't have an honest character and if you do not have a godly character, everything unravels. Ahab's name means God is a close relative, but you'd have never known that by the way he lived. Ahab's spiritual legacy is summed up in these tragic words that we read in the text. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any before him. What, what, a, what a horrible legacy. What a terrible epitaph. Would you want that carved on your tombstone? This guy was the most wicked guy in Monroe County. I mean, really? Wow. What? For all generations to see. Now, it would seem, it would seem that the nation of Israel had it all together. Good economy, peace with its neighbors, a handsome popular king, but the nation was on verge of collapse. In the midst of Samaria's financial wealth, there was great poverty. And it all began with spiritual poverty. Ahab made the mistake of his life. Marrying a woman by the name of Jezebel. She was the daughter of a Phoenician king who was also a priest of Baal. And, and her name, even today, just drips with wickedness. And, and, and what Jezebel did was that she brought with her this idolatry. Now, up to this point in time, Ahab had not been so taken in by the idolatrous cultures around him. But once he married her and she set foot in the land, the worship of God began to fade. And the worship of Baal took over. And in Jezreel, the summer capital of Israel, she had 450 prophets of this idol, Baal, and his female counterpart, Asherah. And she fed them and took care of them out of her own purse. She even convinced Ahab to build a temple in Samaria to Baal where he began to worship Baal instead of God. Can I just throw in a tidbit right here? Be ever so careful who you choose to marry. Because the person that we link our lives with for the rest of our earthly existence can and will shape us and change us. If Ahab had married a godly woman, Israel's history might be completely different. Jezebel was the undoing of the spiritual nature and suddenly Israel is thrust, thrust into spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty then led to moral decline. Do you know that the rites and the rituals and the ceremonies associated with the worship of Baal and Asherah were largely sexual in nature and involved children being sacrificed as well? Historically speaking, Baal worship was the most degrading religious system ever devised. Some scholars and historians believe that the Phoenician coast was settled by the depraved refugees from Sodom and Gomorrah who fled to the Phoenician coast when their cities were destroyed. And out of that comes this worship of Baal. Let me tell you, when the Romans who were no paragon of virtue or morality. When the Romans first encountered the worship of Baal, they were absolutely nauseated by, by the whole experience, appalled that any people could act this way in the worship of a God. And with sport, spiritual and moral decline comes the decline of society. Verse 31 reveals an important word. 
he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel. Do you see that? Trivial. When we start trivializing God's word and commands, boy, that's bad news. So what did God do? Here in the midst of all of this, God sent an ordinary man with an extraordinary message. Now, I've been writing and preaching sermons, uh, writing sermons at least, uh, for over 40 years and, and preaching most of those. Um, most of the time, it figures about 15 hours a week. I, I wish I really had more time to spend than the 15 hours. But I'd say that, that's kind of a minimum on preparing a sermon. Elijah's first sermon, I, I think, probably took him about 60 seconds to prepare and 10 seconds to deliver. I know what you're thinking. Boy, do we wish Elijah was our preacher. <laughs> But I'm, but I'm here to tell you, of all the sermons I've ever written and the sermons I've ever preached, if you wrapped them all together, they would not have the impact of this first extraordinary sermon of Elijah. Ten seconds. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, we know later that it was three and a half years. But at the time, there's no time limit put on this. And the rain stopped on that day. Three and a half years. And you say, boy, why such harsh punishment? That's a long drought. You know people are going to suffer in that kind of a drought. Because sometimes when things get really bad, God needs to give his people a wake-up call. When things are good, we can be lulled into a stupor or into a spiritual sleep. After all, for the last six decades... For over 60 years, God's people of Israel had been listening to the prophets preach over and over and over again about spiritual transformation. You got to change your ways. You got to change your ways. And they didn't. And so after you've said it over and over and over and over again, you have to take another course of action. And sometimes it's a wake-up call that brings us back to reality. God has to put action behind his words to get his people's attention. Has God ever had to do that with you? Has God ever grabbed your attention because you hadn't been listening to him earlier? Have circumstances in your life ever convinced you, I've got to do something to get right with God. I cannot go on this way. When Bob Russell was still preaching at uh, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, he, he told the story of Charlie and Nancy Heron. Uh, Charlie and Nancy uh, lived in a home, and, and Nancy woke up one night and heard thieves, burglars, in the kitchen. Now, she, she didn't wake Charlie, who was soundly sleeping at that moment, because she thought, if I wake him, he'll get up, he'll try to do something, and he's liable to get hurt. But they didn't leave right away. And, and then they came upstairs, and they came into the bedroom, and they shined a flashlight in Nancy's eyes, and she just instinctively screamed. Charlie sat bolt right up in bed, and he came face to face with a gun. The gun went off three times. The burglars fled, and Charlie and Nancy sat there with their hearts pounding out of their chest. Now, they didn't stay there that night because... There was a police investigation. When the police got there, uh, Charlie said, they, they were firing blanks. He said, because nobody could have missed me at that range. But when the police began to examine it, they found one bullet in the headboard of the bed, one bullet between Charlie's legs, and one bullet lodged in the pillow that Charlie was sleeping on. So they, they went and they spent the night with Charlie's 
aunt, also there in Louisville, who, by the way, was a member at Southeast Christian Church. She called Bob Russell the next morning, and she said, Bob, my nephew Charlie isn't a Christian, but I think he might be ready to listen to the gospel. <laughs> Bob said he went to see Charlie. He said he was the most receptive person he's ever talked to about Jesus Christ. And later that week, he gave his life to the Lord and was baptized. Sometimes we need a wake-up call. And sometimes the circumstances of life come at a such, in such a way that all of a sudden we realize, whoa, I, I've got to do something about this relationship I have with God. Or, in Charlie's case, I don't have with God. Now, now folks, I certainly don't equate America as a modern-day Israel in the Bible. That, that's not the case. The, the, the people of God today are the church global. It's not, we're not relegated to a nation. The, the church is above any and beyond any nation. It, it operates in every nation and culture. The, the church is God's people today. But history does seem to indicate that when a people or a nation abandons God, his words, and his precepts, the culture experiences a downward spiral. Being born smack dab in the middle of the baby boomer generation, I have witnessed a lot of changes in our culture, many of which are not positive. David Roper writes, he said, Christian assumptions and commitments once widely held no longer have the presence and the impact they formerly had. Wow. Did you know, every year in America, 3,200 churches close their doors? That's 267 every month, or 67 every week, or roughly nine churches every day are closing their doors. Those are troubling statistics. Because, like Garrett knows, and like we know, that the answer to the problems that we face is to be found in Jesus Christ. When we get our spiritual lives, where our spiritual lives need to be, the rest of it can start falling into place. But if the spiritual foundation isn't there, it's hard to correct the problems that, that just seem to overwhelm our culture. Sometimes, sometimes we just miss the obvious. <laughs> a father was filling out a form to register his child for school. Under the form's question that said, language spoken at home, he answered, generally good, unless I get mad. <laughs> I think he missed the obvious. Sometimes we miss the obvious too. Where does light shine the brightest? In the darkness, of course. We wring our hands in despair of our culture, but the light always shines best in gloomy times. Is God still working? Well, of course he is. Is he still making a difference through his kingdom? Absolutely. Could he use someone like me? Could he use someone like you? As hard as it may be to believe, yes, he can and he will. And when it comes to being the church, what I've noticed through the years here at Sherwood Oaks is the best ideas have always come from ordinary folks in the congregation. International furniture drive, international in-home Bible studies, family-run food pantries, families adopting college students during their times here, and while the cyclotron was treating cancer patients, we had the Hoosier Care Ministry, all those and so many more have come from ordinary people with a passion to make a difference as they feel led by God. God. 
Do not be quick to dismiss your dreams and passions. If you are fervent about something, it may be God working in you to accomplish his plan through you. We've already heard from Garrett this morning how probably West Dallas was not what he was dreaming God was sending him to do. But once he got there and once he followed God's lead, he has found the passion of his heart and his life. I don't know that God is going to send you to West Dallas, Texas. But God will use you somewhere if you are an ordinary person with extraordinary willingness to be used by him. And we have this Christian responsibility, I believe, as the body of Christ to encourage one another when we see people's talents and abilities. Now, don't take that responsibility lightly. Sometimes people just need a word of encouragement or a pat on the back to do what they're supposed to do. But make sure it really is their talent or their ability. Be responsible to help somebody develop what God has planted in them. A young man sang a solo in a church service at church and didn't hit one note right. Everybody knew he just couldn't sing. Even the boy knew he couldn't sing. But afterwards, some of the good people in the congregation went up, pat him on the back, told him he did a good job, said, oh, you're a good singer, keep it up. Finally, one man walked up to him honestly and said, son, it's not your fault. You can't sing. You did the best you could do, and you should be commended for your efforts. But whoever asked you to sing ought to be shot. You see, sometimes the blame may fall on the person who's doing the encouraging than the person who's doing the acting. Because in the body of Christ, we are to help one another rise to the talents and abilities that God has placed in us. Because remember, we're ordinary people. God doesn't make us extraordinary in every area. If you can't sing, don't sing. But do what you can do well for Jesus Christ. So here's your assignment for this next week. Beginning today, I want you to take some time to pray about your role in God's plan. The book of James that we read at the very beginning of the sermon reminds us that Elijah was a, was a great man because of the prayer, the power of prayer. We cannot do this of our own power. So I want you to pray that God will work in your life to enlighten you where he needs you to serve. And then I want you to take some time and just look at your life. I mean, sit down and take some time. Don't just do this while you're doing something else. Focus. Maybe even take a sheet of paper and write down all the areas where you have a passion, things that make you excited in life. And then start looking. Is there a way that God can take something I love to do and use it in the kingdom? Because I've always discovered that if you love doing something, you'll do it best. Pray about it. Figure out where God has gifted you and made you passionate. And we'll start this exploration together of Elijah because what happens in his life really does strike us where we are today.